Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Poppy McDonald. Poppy is the president of USA Facts, the nonpartisan, nonprofit civic initiative and source for well-visualized data on the American people and how we are doing as a nation, leading an effort to help Americans ground their democratic debate in facts. Previously, Poppy served as president and CEO of Political USA, president, publisher, and chief revenue officer of the National Journal, as well as executive director of business development at Politico Pro, overseeing the launch of Politico's first paid subscription model. Poppy has also served as a partner at Gallup, where she launched the World Poll and led the healthcare practice. Poppy began her career serving members of Congress, representing her Pacific Northwest hometown on both the Senate and House sides of Capitol Hill. And she is happy to be back enjoying Seattle with her husband and two children. Welcome, Poppy. So good to see you. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Shauna. I'm so appreciative. Oh, of course. This is going to be super fun. Um, Okay, I'm going to start with some rapid fire. Are you ready? Absolutely. What three words would you use to describe yourself as a leader as far as your leadership style? I would say accessible, trustworthy, and hardworking. Love it. And how is that different or the same as far as how your kids would describe you? Oh, probably some of the same. I think they would definitely say hardworking. Um, they would probably say feisty. Um, and they would say, maybe untrustworthy. They say sometimes I'm repeating stories at dinner parties that they really weren't expecting me to tell. So yeah. maybe the they would say, uh, yes. So I'm learning that one that, uh, yes, teen stories are, are not always ones that are, uh, they're excited to have you share with others, but, um, yeah, exactly. I think they would say accessible. They would call me accessible, uh, maybe not always in their, um, you know, right when they get home from school hours, but like definitely, once I'm done with my work day, I'm, I'm yeah. accessible and maybe more so than they'd want me to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I always think it's super validating. I always ask the kids for a like love letter for, for Valentine's for, um, for mother's day instead of a present. 
And when they say stuff like at the end of the day, like you're always there, you're like my person, which is such a mother's mama, mama bear kind of role. It's so nice because when you're working so hard, it's like, hey, just want, even though you're not there at three or the you know typical kind of what you think of or were raised to believe, it's nice when you know that you're making a, an impact, right? And having influence for them. Um, okay, so what is a habit that you are currently trying to break? Oh, good question. Um, you know, I would say my habit is to sleep until the last possible minute and then get ready for my work day. And I would love to break that. And then I work out at night and I would love to break that habit and start like getting up before I need to and working out and journaling and like having the slow, quiet morning. It just hasn't been my habit, but I think it would be a good one. It's a constant. I do get up and work out and I do not do my calm app and journal, which would be two things I would love to create as new habits. Um, and I've been wanting to for, I don't even know how many years. So I understand that people say it's like a game changer. Um, okay. Is there something on your nightstand that you want to share that you're currently reading? Oh, well, I, I'm reading something currently different right now, but the best book I've read so far this year is The Paper Palace, which is just like a fun page turning read um, that uh, she was her first, this author's first published book. I heard about it on NPR, but it is not like a, a NPR kind of a book. It's just like a really fun read about um, a woman uh, kind of grappling with love and life and family and there's just like a kind of an explosive fun scene right at the beginning and it just like sucks you in so I, okay. I recommend that one so speaking of habits what is a I guess vice or something that you go to that like relieves some sort of stress or is your kind of one little like naughty habit oh trashy tv for sure <laughs> like I'm trying to think about my worst I mean uh probably southern charm or say selling sunset selling sunset i've been watching with my daughter which is like so not something probably you should watch with your teenage daughter but yeah but me, anytime you can spend together is good time right i yes i, I would say so so yeah I just, emily in paris which i didn't watch with my daughter but i, I watched on the the treadmill i mean yes. i don't know just like some fun just completely mindless yeah um television yeah, it's brain candy. It's perfect. Totally. And so what do you do aside from your, I guess maybe your uh, treadmill, but what is, what do you do to kind of clear your mind and escape from all the chaos of kids and work and COVID and just all the nutty stuff we're going through? Um, yeah. So I would say exercise while I watch some sort of like show I enjoy journal which I'm not great about but I do it on the weekends it's like it has to be the days when I wake up before everyone else which is since teenagers as you probably know have to be woken up at like 10 30 or 11 um then I usually I'm definitely up on weekends and so when I can just have my quiet my coffee and journal um okay so tell me from the, we we like know each other but I don't really know your life story I know now from researching you that you're from Salem um, tell me about your childhood in Salem, Oregon. Yeah, so I grew up in Salem. I was born to um, parents who were 19 and 20. They were not expecting to have a child at the time. Um, so I would say we were kind of a 
growing up together. Um, so I think in terms of like how I was as a kid, I was like pretty independent and a self-advocate. Um, I don't know, my parents say like my first few words I strung together were like self-do it. Like I wanted to do everything on my own. Um, and I think like part of that was just the fact that like my parents were still growing up and like just, um, and they were single, but raising me together. Um, and they, you know, I, I think I kind of knew um, part that like they they were so busy just thinking about like how to care for a child and how to, to grow up um, that, you know, they weren't as able to, you know, no one was asking like, do you have homework? Are you getting your homework done? What grades are you getting? Um, and so really like anything that I wanted to do, like that was kind of really up to me to like manage myself. And I think it made me really independent. Yeah. And did you have families that you would go kind of for hangouts or play dates where you were like a little bit more leave it to beaver, what you'd like the traditional, what you'd picture or where you're like, did that bother you when you were little or was it more like you were, you recognized because now with perspective, we can all recognize, you know, the good, the bad, all of it. But when you were little, were you like, oh, this is awesome that my parents aren't asking me because other parents are, or did, was that a gap for you? Well, I think it was a mix of both. So I think in some ways, I thought it was so cool that people would be like, those are your parents? Like, they're so young, right? Like, my dad's climbing the slide. I think people thought he was, like, he was a teenager in some respects. So I think they thought my parents were like other, not kids on the park per se, but like, young teenage kids on the park. Um, and I thought that was cool that I had such young parents and people would talk about like, whoa, I can't believe those are your parents. Yeah. Um, and in other respects, right, as they were figuring out their own lives, that involved a lot of like moving around and, you know, two different schools in a year and like job changes. And, you know, so I would say I was jealous of some of the like stability and quiet and calm of other families. Um, that makes and sense. I think, you know, in terms of like, what about your friends' families? I mean, I was super lucky when I think about like, um, you don't pay attention to like what you're, you know, you're friends have parents but like you don't really think of them as like humans that have lives other than like being a parent and when it got time for me to think about going to college my parents hadn't got, I was the first in my family to go to college and so it was those parents that said like hey where are you thinking about going to college and I was like "Ooh, I don't know I guess I mean my parents have said if I really want to do it it's probably community college and you know one dad said hey you need to make an appointment with me. And he was the Dean of Admissions at Willamette University and was like, you can, you can, you have a lot of options. Like community college is one option. There are also a lot of other options. And here's how you do financial aid. Here's your list of colleges. So he got involved and other friends, families, like, are your parents taking you to see any of these colleges? No, come with us. We're going on a road trip. We're going to take um, you to colleges. So I got super, super lucky. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And um, did your parents end up having more kids together? No. So I was, yeah, my parents only, uh, <laughs> oops. And then they, they got married to different people and then they had kids. So I do have half siblings, but um, I was their only, their only child. Their only child they had together. And when you were little, I guess maybe it was some of these families or were there other maybe teachers or anybody that you would say in um, looking back was kind of a role model? Oh, I mean, for sure. Yeah. Whether it was 
um, you know, parents, friends, or uh, families I babysat for, for sure, who like really encouraged me like, hey, what I mean, I babysat for a family and the dad was a professor at the local college. And so he would like, you know, hey, what are you working on tonight? What's your homework? Oh, okay. You know, do you want me to take a look at that paper? Like, so definitely there were uh, families that I babysat for who said like, Hey, you have so much potential and like, um, how can we help you? And what advice do you need? So, um, I had role models in those people. I had a, I got involved in a, in theater and I had this amazing director, uh, Phyllis Kwanbeck, who's just like a spitfire. And she wrote me an amazing recommendation and just would like push me to like, I know you can do more. Like, I know you can, you know, you can do even greater things than you are right now. And just like really encouraging me. So yeah, I got, I got super lucky that way. These are, these are amazing stories. And did you have a sense for what you wanted to kind of be when you grew up, when you were little? I didn't. So I'm, I always am curious. Um, when I interview people, I say like, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. So no pressure. And I'm well grown up as you know. Um, so I didn't know what I wanted to be. Um, I definitely knew that like, I wanted to leave my town that I wanted to like go explore. I, my family had never been on an airplane. Um, we had taken some road trips, right. But it was more like fishing camping in the Oregon area. Um, and so I just knew that like, um, I wanted to, um, yeah, see, see the country, see the world and just go on, go in and and do something different. Um, and I think I was really called to serve. Like I, I wanted to provide service, add value, um, and think about how I could give back. Um, and just in that way. That's amazing. And when did you have a sense, I guess that you had leadership skills, um, you know, sometimes they talk about like little girls being told they're bossy or being told and, and other people kind of camouflaging. Like, how did you show up in like middle school and high school? I would say wanting to try a lot of different things and not being totally comfortable in my skin yet. So I'm not sure if leadership skills totally emerged in middle school, high school. Um, I think I was the, I don't know if I was the the nerd. I mean, I was so strange. Like I was on the cheerleading team and I also was like a thespian, right? I acted in like theater productions and I had like my close friends, but I definitely was like, um, uh, you know, really focused on like school and knowing I had to get good grades and like knowing it was like up to me what my future was going to be. So I think I was like, putting pressure on myself. Um, was I a standout leader at that time? Um, no, I don't, I don't think I was. I'm not sure when that emerged. I think it was more probably going to college and like seeing kind of the world was my oyster. And like, I just had to take advantage of like all these opportunities that were sitting there waiting for me. Totally. Um, so charting my own path then I think is really probably when it started to kick in. Yeah, I'm hearing I'm hearing a theme for sure. And I'm curious because it's not just that you went to college, you went to a phenomenal college, like Scripps, um, all girls, right? Yep. Women's and college. And women's college. I love that. And part of the Claremont McKenna schools. I only know all of these details because my cousin went there. And um, I guess it's like, how did you even know about it? Yeah. So when that friend's dad, who was the dean of admissions at Willamette, when he sat me down, he made me a list of like 18 schools. He thought that I really, I could get into and that I would really enjoy going to. And he said, and by the way, I put a couple women's colleges on there. 
And I said, oh gosh, you don't know me very well, Mr. Sumner. I have no problem talking in front of men. And he's like, puppy, like just kind of shook his head. And in the kindest way possible, was like, you don't really understand what a woman's college is. You should do a little research. And then as I was researching and went to visit campuses and realized like it is about empowering women, helping women think about not only like their opportunity to lead, but how women have led in history that we don't really hear about. Um, and that it's about making an effort to like lift women's stories and to lift and empower women and just yeah. like a strong community and network it was. I was like, that is the place for me. Not gonna lie, the fact it was that it was within the Claremont colleges. And so there were like plenty of men around um, also, you know, made me more interested yeah. in that school, but it was such an awesome environment. And I made these incredible friendships that have, you know, just continued to this day be like a part of my daily life. And so out, out of scripts, did you have a sense for, I mean, you, you studied history and um, how did you parlay that into this kind of robust and also like a potpourri of experiences within your career. Yeah, so my sophomore year, people, spring semester, everyone's like, well, where are you going abroad next year? Hadn't even occurred to me that like going abroad was something people do. And so I like went over to the study abroad office and they're like, um, well, where do you want to go? And I was like, well, somewhere Spanish speaking. And they're like, well, how many semesters do you have? And I said two. And they're like, well, you can't go anywhere Spanish speaking. You have to have three. I'm like, okay, where else can I go? And they were like, well, uh, you know, we probably some more English speaking. And I said, I don't want to do that. Like it was like Australia or uh, London. And um, they said, well, the only places you can go are places that we don't teach the language. So we don't teach Swahili and we don't teach Nepalese. And I was like, sign me up, you know? And so then when I went to tell my advisor, well, first I encountered somebody who's like, what, you're going to Nepal? You know, Poppy, they don't have showers. Like, do you, are you going to be able to hack that? And I was like, oh, it'll be fine. But when I told my advisor, she's like, Poppy, you're a U.S. history major. Like, I will indulge you, Nepal or Kenya, take your pick. But then you're going to Washington, D.C. So fortunate that, like, she took, like, a pretty active, aggressive, like, stance because I had no, really had no direction. So I had this amazing semester in Nepal, living in a mud hut, no running water, like, exactly as you know people described it learning to speak fluent Nepalese and write in Nepalese and then I headed to Washington DC and I got to an internship with the McLaughlin group which is one of the first of its kind media roundtable shows and I loved being in that environment where I was like wait what you can get paid to learn like I felt like I was getting paid to be a student because it's like just scour all the papers like figure out what's going on and then let's think about like what should our new show this week focus on and like who should we invite mind you I was an intern so I was also like getting people's lunch like making photocopies I mean it yes. was all glamour but I was sitting in the glamour it felt super exciting I got to be like on set every week and then I knew after that point like I want to go back to DC where I feel like I'm in the heart of something that really matters of what's impacting our country, but I want to feel like I'm giving back. And so then that gave me the direction of, I want to work on Capitol Hill. And I really started my career, Capitol Hill, working for uh, members from the Pacific Northwest. And I started you know, answering constituent mail. And then I was a press secretary. And that really got me on my, I'd say, winding uh, career path, which has always been about information should be accessible to everyone in this country. It is our right as citizens. 
it should be accessible and it should be factual. Mm -hmm. Yes. So what is that interview process like? I love these resumes. When I lived in New York, there were a lot of people that had like worked on the Hill and it's in like in their early twenties. And it almost seems the equivalent of, I don't even know, not quite extended college, but just sounds like a blast, like just a combo of your learning and you're around all the power and decisions, but you're also just having so much fun around like-minded, smart, curious individuals. It is just like that. It's pretty amazing. Like it's all of these young, hungry professionals who just want to make a difference and like do good things. And so it is, um, you know, an intense work environment that's like driven by what's the issue of the day or what's going on on the hill that day and people put in a lot of hours they also have a lot of fun together right so then you're um there's lots of opportunities to like network and go to different events and so um it's just like this fun environment and everyone's open to like meeting new people and um it is just it was a, a great place to start my career I mean I don't think you can ever replicate it again I would say I tell people if you're going to work on Capitol Hill, make it your first job because you will never make um, less money. Like you just really, I had every two weeks, I had $15 of discretionary income and I had to decide like, how am I going to spend this $15? Yeah. And for whatever reason, it didn't occur to me at the time, like get a credit card and like just charge up debt. I didn't do that. I'm so thankful I didn't do that. But like living on $15 was really tough um and so super tough yes but you just had to like you know go to receptions eat the free food uh, and take public transportation and um you know wear whatever clothes you had I was gonna say you just wear the same navy (laughs) suit like every single day and so um how was that interview process to get selected for those jobs what types what types of what's the vetting process So I feel like it's a lot about either connections. So like, do you know somebody who knows somebody? Did your parents help fundraise or whatever? It's either that or it's just sheer like chutzpah and like work ethic and willpower. So I had no connections. So what I did was basically just walk door to door to door on to any Capitol Hill office that I had some connection to. I went to school in California. So that gave me like every California member. So that was a big group. Um, Oregon connection, Washington, pretty close to Oregon. So I said Pacific Northwest, right? So here are my connections. I, when your constituents come to Washington, DC, like I know something about the state that they're coming from. I can relate to them. And by the way, like I also have all the, you know, the whole McLaughlin group media panel are my references, like, give me a shot, let me in the door. And so it was mostly about finding the kismet of like a member of Congress who had a entry level job open, and um, who was willing to have a conversation and then just saying, will you just give me 15 minutes? Even if you don't have a job, give me 15 yeah. minutes. These right? are, these are, I ask these questions because I'm personally always super curious just about the whole, um, just people's lives and like how decisions get made, how opportunities are created. And a lot of times it does come down to that chutzpah and that grit. And I just hope my kids ever listen to this podcast or your kids, because it's like, it's lessons for these kids who are so used to instant gratification and they don't really have that grind mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what you're describing. You're like, listen, uh, where, where can I thrive here? And how do I make that happen on your own? 
It's incredible. And so when you left government, was that something conscious? Like, okay, I'm over it. I need to make money. Or did it happen organically because you got recruited into something new? Yeah, I left because I was, I'd been a press secretary and a communications director. So I was working with the media and mostly the media that were based in the Pacific Northwest to say, here's what's happening in Washington. Here's what the member of Congress is doing. Here's why it matters to our state, right? So I was playing that liaison role. And I knew a little bit about a lot of issues, but I didn't really have substance or depth. And when I thought about like, what are the issues I really care about? It's healthcare, it's education. It's, there were certain issues I really gravitated toward. And I was like, I want to go a little bit deeper and also um, probably an opportunity to like earn a little bit more. Um, and so I wasn't still $15 at that point, but like, maybe I was like, I was working a second job, I would say, um, at Ann Taylor um, in the evenings, just to like have a little bit more discretionary income. Um, and I, so doing one job also was, was a goal. Um, and I, so yeah, I just started looking at companies who had that same focus. So I ended up at a company called the Advisory Board that did uh, best practice consulting for hospitals and health systems. And I was, again, another good fit of like constantly learning, having a dialogue with hospital and health system executives about like what is hard about the work they're doing, what's changing, and then what are best practices? What are uh, leading institutions doing and ensuring that like we establish that network and we shared those best practices so that healthcare could be lifted for all? And so I pivoted um, out at that point um, and certainly don't ever regret the Capital Hill experience. It was amazing. Yeah. And where were you when you were working at the um, advisory board company? Where in was Washington, that? Washington, D.C. Oh, that's still in, in D.C. Still in D.C. Okay. Too. But then you kind of parlayed your way like a little bit back in with Politico and just all your next roles, but kind of back into the media realm, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, from advisory board, I went to a company called Gallup, which is the polling company. Um, and I think I surprised myself a little bit because they were like, okay, well, you came to interview for our healthcare practice. We have established clients, a product, a price point, a whole book of business you'll be walking into, or we have this thing that our CEO wants to do. He wants to like pull the world, but like he doesn't know what the product would be, how he'd pay for it, what, like how we package it, who the customers might be. Um, which one would you be interested in? And I was like, I want to do that one. It's like nothing exists. That sounds really cool. And so I discovered then that like, ooh, not only do I love providing like value and like being of service, but I like building new things that don't exist that can do that. Um, and so I launched their world poll and then at Gallup and I built the customer base and uh, established the model, which had consulting and access to polling data. And then I got a call from Politico um, saying, hey, we wanna do something new. We need a new revenue stream. We think we could offer a subscription. We don't know what it would be called, exactly what it would be, who our customers would be. You did that at Gallup. Would you ever think about coming and doing that in media? Um, and it wasn't like they handed me the job. Like they just, do you want to come interview? Um, and it was um, a great foot in the door of media. And I had a lot of fun building that for Politico. Um, and I think that's when I got, you know, I kept my like entrepreneurial, ooh, building cool things that are brand new from the ground up that I can like leave my mark on a little bit. Um, yeah. That is a fun place to be. Yeah. And how was the um, culture there? Like, what was the company culture like? Yeah, at Politico, um, yeah. it's 
you know, breakneck speed, win the news cycle, like beat everyone to the punch. So it was an intense, scrappy culture, but people were very committed to making information accessible, making sure that what was happening in Washington was transparent and open. And so you could be there at, you know, seven in the morning or eight at night. And the newsroom was always buzzing. There were, it was always full of people. They were always onto some story. So it had the energy and spirit and liveliness that really reminded me of back when I was on Capitol Hill. All these. I'm sure. I feel like it's like out of a movie for me. Like I've seen movies about this type of environment. It seems so intoxicating and kind of addicting to be in that like adrenaline rush all the time of like the beat and the newest story. Was there a period of time when you were there that felt like the most heated or is there ever, I guess when you have the perspective of like, things are always crazy or like we've got like the older people, like we've been through crazier than this, but certain moments are like, oh my God, the world is ending or it's falling apart. Were there chapters when you were there that felt like that? Well, I think probably one of those times would be um, the race between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Um, While Politico and other media entities in the world didn't know who for sure is going to be elected, I think some people had an assumption that it was going to be Hillary Clinton. And um, when Donald Trump was elected, all of a sudden, it, we there was a realization of, whoa, we probably haven't done enough homework here. I'm not sure how much homework there could have been could have been done because there, he didn't have this political history, this political career where mm. you would sort of know like who would his cabinet be and um, who are the people that was going to be his chief of staff and who will be his closest advisors and what would his what are his policy positions likely to be and it was like a big unknown so I think that really sent uh, the newsroom scrambling right like we have a duty to transparently report what we think this means for legislation for citizens in the United States. Um, and we don't have really a lot of information to report right now. So, I mean, that was definitely a big moment. Oh, I'm sure. And how do you even approach that um, in a kind of a nonpartisan, like how does that reporting get done when people are coming at it? It was so heated and so charged emotionally for people. So how do you... Um, not necessarily screen for people that are going to make sure to stay objective. But what was that like for you to be in that environment where it was probably very heated? Yeah, I mean, it, when we at Politico, and um, we would say you have to, you can have your own, obviously everyone has their own personal views and you can even have a history, right? I had a history where I worked on Capitol Hill, uh, a history where you were involved in politics or you worked on a campaign. But once you join this organization, like um, that's over. There's no donating to any political party or political campaign or even a cause. There is no um, going out and, you know, going to a campaign rally unless you're there as a media person with a press badge. Um, But there's no um, attending fundraisers, right? Like it is, we are nonpartisan and we are not going to be compromised. And even if it's just visually compromised. So whether you're um, I don't know, answering the phone or you're on the sales team or you're doing events for Politico. It's You may not be a reporter, but even so, we do not want to be compromised or questioned about our integrity or our nonpartisanship 
because somebody says, I saw Politico staffers at something that was for a particular side. Right. That said, there were certainly people having personal feelings about it. Um, and it was just important to say, you know, to put that aside and that we have a duty to Americans and that's just to report like, what might this mean? And by the way, like we were caught a little bit unprepared. Right. And so as far as um, this might be just such a cliche question, but I am curious, certain industries are known to be very male dominant. Has that ever um, been something that you've observed where you're like, I have to speak up louder or I have to have a male um, advocate to get my ideas across? Or have you not experienced that working in media? Well, I would say definitely I have been, I have experienced being one of the few women at the leadership table and being in the minority. Um, I remember going on a retreat, a work retreat when I was at Atlantic Media and it, we got to bring our spouses, which was amazing. And the only two men's spouses that were there were the uh, head of HR's husband. And then my husband and I, I ran one of the media divisions. But other than that, all the, the spouses were women. Um, and so definitely have had that one of the few or the only women at the leadership table, I'd say throughout my career. Um, I'd say one of the, if I have to laugh about it, like when I was working at Gallup and launching the World Poll, I did a lot of work with uh, the Department of Defense and the various military divisions. And I actually loved going on site uh, to do work with them or going to conferences because there was no line at the women's restroom. The line to the men's restroom was like around the corner. So it's like, That's the best. hey, there finally, finally a yes. situation where like I get to that yeah. line. Um, yeah. And then I think too, um, I, I looked very young um, when I was doing consulting and I had uh, instances where I actually had women say, um, I'm sorry, we just can't have you presenting to the executive team because like, there's no way that they would find you credible. Like you look young, you're a woman, like it's just not gonna work. I hope you don't take offense, but you're gonna have to find somebody else to present to the, the leadership team. Um, and having them say, in fact, we want that guy, right? And that guy had 10 years less of experience than me, but he was prematurely balding and overweight. <laughs> And it was like, you're like, I it. know, make it a double. <laughs> oh my God. That's... And so kind of having a fight where it was like, this isn't fair. I have way more experience, but like I look a certain way and I'm losing credibility for you. Um, and then doing, having to do things like, whereas man would just say, hello, here I am. And let me present to you how you're going to, you know, here's the findings and, and here's what it means. I'd have to do that hello, here I am. I have this many years of experience. I've worked with these clients. I have this kind of a degree. I have, the, right. I'd have to like prove myself be in a different right. way. Than You're I like guilt, guilty until proven innocent versus innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. A total flip in the way that people experience you. And so how did you show up as far as if we're sitting in a group of women, younger women, and you're saying like, this is how I have found my way, everyone's got their own way of navigating those situations, um, not just behaviorally, but also what is your special sauce, your ninja skill, um, since you've been kind of this like gun for hire? Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's being a strong communicator would be my ninja skill. And I think communicating clearly, thoughtfully, diplomatically, forming a relationship, but also 
I tend to come in with like the zingers, right? Like not the zingers in that like it's mean, but um, I come in with the, hey, I'm not like, I'm not here to be mean. I'm here to be direct though. Like I'm here to say it like it is. And I'm doing that and you're going to be surprised. Whoa, she seems so nice. She looks so young. She seems so experienced. I think I catch people off guard because I think they're like, oh, that nice young woman. Um, she's just so sweet and so uh, approachable and so great. And so I think they let their guard down and I get people to like, tell me things. I understand things about like what's happening. And then I can use that to um, call people out on their baloney or push an organization forward or just being like very direct. And so um, I've heard from women and men, like, I really like your approach because you're approachable and kind and you listen and yet you're not a pushover. Like I'm the opposite of that, right? Like um, I'm, I'm direct and straightforward and like I have a goal and I, I don't have time to waste. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think just people being able to let their guard down, but then um, using that sort of trust and relationship to like move an organization forward has, has worked well for me. Yeah. I love that. And who have been some of your, um, you know, we talked about some of the people in your childhood, but through your career, who have been some of the people that have either taken you on as far as um, helping you along in your career or just inspired you to be better? Yeah, so men, mostly men actually, but um, not because I don't enjoy working with women or I've had bad experiences working for women. I just, I think because of the tables I've described where I was one of the few women, um, there were men around me. So um, a few of those people, David Bradley, who ran Atlantic Media, he always talked about a force of ideas and a spirit of generosity as the pillars by which we operate. And I loved the spirit of generosity because I think it was counter to what I thought being successful in a revenue generating business would look like. For him, it was, we should provide, we should think generously about whenever a customer needs anything, um, no matter what that customer is asking, we shouldn't think, well, are they actually paying enough for that? Should we charge them more for this? Um, we should just do it. Like just serve your customer the revenue will come. So he used to talk about like the locomotive is service. If you think about a train, what's powering us, the caboose, which can be on or off the tracks, it's going to get yanked around. Like that's revenue and the revenue will come. And I love that kind of turning conventional wisdom about like, well, you know, we got to make sure we're charging, right? And that like, we're getting paid every dime for everything we do. No, just serve and like the revenue will come. I love that. Um, Jim Clifton, who is the CEO of Gallup, um, he would do these um, advisory groups for him where he was like, when he had a big decision to make, he liked to get a lot of different viewpoints at the table. And Gallup, one of their Q12 questions is, at work, my opinions seem to count. And you would just get a phone call at your desk. Hey, Jim's got a business challenge he's grappling with. Can you meet him in the boardroom in 15 minutes? And you'd show up and it would be this diverse group of people from around the company. And he'd say, Here's my business problem. This is what I'm going through. What do you think? Um, and I loved that of like, you can get good ideas from anyone at any level in the organization and you're going to be a better leader if you're open to hearing those ideas and getting that diverse thinking and perspective. Um, and so David and Jim have remained mentors of mine. And then I currently work for Steve Ballmer. And what I love about him is he says, you know, I'm your board of advisors. This is your organization. Um, and you can come and ask me questions and I'll give you my opinion, but never what I say means go do that. 
This is your organization, run it. You know it best. So you've got to make the calls. It's your company. I'm here to give you advice, take it or leave it. He not only says that to me, but when he's around my team members, he always says, hey, here's what I think. But what I think is just input. The person who makes the decisions is Poppy. Um, so I am so appreciative of like how empowered um, he has made me and our team to run the organization. So definitely a mentor in that way. Like how do you provide guidance and mentorship, but yet fully empower those people that you work with? That's incredible. Makes me love him even more. I, <laughs> I think that's fantastic. So it's a perfect parlay into USA Facts. Tell, yeah. tell me and our listeners like what it is and how you ended up, uh, how you ended up here. Yes, USA Facts, our mission is to empower Americans with the facts. So we provide access to government data. We take it from over 70 sources and make it really easy to find the data um, and find the facts. And it comes from um, it really it started when Steve Ballmer left Microsoft and he wanted to do more from a philanthropic perspective to lift kids out of poverty. And he knew there were already a number of government programs that existed. So he said to his finance team, hey, I want to see what government's doing just before I start investing. Where, what are the government revenues? How much are they spending uh, to fight poverty? Are those programs effective or not? Because I want to fill in the gaps. And the group said, give us two weeks. And six months later, they were finally able to get that data. And so Steve thought, if it's this hard for me um, as a citizen with a lot of resources to be able to get government data so I can factually understand how are we as a country doing by the numbers on an issue that's so important, like lifting kids out of poverty, how hard must it be for a citizen or a lawmaker? They don't have access to this data. Um, and when we think about the challenge with uh, misinformation, right, where you've got a citizen who's like, I am so confused, like, I'm seeing this information, I'm concerned about it, I want to hit forward. And then you have people saying, oh, I can't believe these people would share that misinformation. Like, didn't they just do their homework or fact check that? Where do they fact check it, right? Like if they turn on Fox or MSNBC, they're hearing completely different versions of the world. Um, mm -hmm. If they are listening to the incumbent in an office, they're probably saying, everything's great. I've totally improved everything. The challenger is probably saying, everything's awful. Uh, we're headed in the completely wrong direction. We think it's really important that there be a source for the facts. And we think the best source is our government's own data, the information we collect about our citizens and where our sources of revenue are and what we're spending it on and the programs that we offer and um, are things getting better or worse by the numbers, not by who's in political power or um, adjectives that are meant to concern or scare people and Americans deserve to have that trusted resource. So we're not for profit, nonpartisan. We just wanna provide easy access to the facts. The timing seems beyond perfect. It's almost like there was a vision of like people just freaking out, like depending on which channel you're listening to, it could be a completely different narrative. And depending on who you surround yourself with, or even just how social media is impacting things, you know, the, the information our kids are being fed. It's crazy. And it's so nice to have this, to have USA Facts as kind of a... Um, a place to go that's trusted. So how do people find out about it? Like I know about it because we've done some work with USA Facts and I know you and obviously being from Seattle, Steve Ballmer, but um, how do you acquire eyes and listeners? Yeah, so thank you, Shauna, for you've helped us 
add to our marketing team, who's really yeah. a big part of um, ensuring the facts get heard. But I would say it's a combination of um, making all this government data that we've collected accessible, right? So, and so what we do is think about based on what's going in, on in the news, based on what we're seeing in on social media, what are the issues that Americans care about right now? And how can we ensure that data is accessible? How can we like round that discussion in the numbers? And so we're producing content uh, every day in uh, with articles, with data visualizations. We are on platforms like uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and TikTok. Um, and we are basically trying to find people where they are, where these discussions are happening and ensuring that we have relevant contextual government data and information um, that we can interject into these conversations and point Americans back to USA Facts. Um, and we've seen some really nice growth. I and mean, when I was hired in 2018, um, and that was USA Facts launched April 2017. So it was about a year and a half after we launched, we had an audience of about 440,000 people. And it, the site was, um, all the data was had a search box and then we have an annual report that's 100 pages and a 10K that we do for the government that's 200 pages. And uh, Steve said, I want more people to use this information. I've built this resource for citizens. How do we get more people to use it? And my feeling at the time was, we have to tell them why this matters. So what? So we collected all this government data. Why does this matter to you? How can this help you understand based on the issues that are going on in your world? Um, are things getting better or worse? How do we create more like bite-sized content um, that helps Americans to like quickly understand? Um, and so as we've continued to produce more content and add more data, including like state and local data, we've seen our audience grow um, to, so we're 440,000 in 2018, we're a million six in 2019, we were 12 and a half million in 2020. Of course we knew there was gonna be an election, presidential election, people were gonna need facts for that. We didn't know there was going to be COVID. Um, and so certainly people were hungry for trusted data and information. And USA Facts not only provided that COVID data for people who came to usafacts.org, if you went to the Centers for Disease Control or to the White House, they were using USA Facts data. So they were pointing people back to us as the source. And then uh, last year we had, we were 20 million was our audience. Oh my gosh, Poppy. I don't think I had any sense of that growth. Yeah, not, not, I mean, I knew growth, but I didn't realize that level of growth. That's insane. So we and we have no revenue objectives or need for, you know, eyeballs to support it. We're super fortunate that that Steve Ballmer funds us as a service for Americans. We do use it, though, as a proxy. Are we providing data and information that is relevant and helpful to Americans? And the best way we think we can measure this is are they coming to usafacts.org? Are they spending time on our site? Are they downloading data? Are they sharing the information that we provide on our social channels? Are they subscribing to our newsletter when they come to usafacts.org so that they keep that weekly update? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, those are probably our, our best measures of su success or our best indicators of are we being effective? Yeah. Um, and I think little surprise things were like, oh my gosh, we are on call to the, the, the Trump White House every night during COVID to Dr. Deborah Bricks and to uh, Vice President Pence's chief of staff about when they were like, what's going on in these numbers? Wow, whoa, okay, this is, it feels really good. We were invited on Capitol Hill and met with over 
300 uh, lawmakers. And I think that probably the most exciting moment was when we had a group of 16 senators from uh, about half Republican and half Democrat came together um, and sat down with our data and started having a conversation. Whoa, oh my gosh, okay, looking at this, what might we do about that? And we weren't necessarily seeing Republicans and Democrats agree on the right solution, but they were having a conversation. Um, and so getting, you know, having rooms like that opened up to us, um, having the Biden transition team to reach out to say, thank you for all that you did on COVID and for what you're doing. Oh my gosh, what what's incredible. And so, these, yeah, these meetings are based on facts versus opinions and emotions, which is, um, just absolutely incredible. And I know that your team is made up of, I mean, I know you mentioned the marketers, but it's also economists, it's writers, it's researchers. How do like all those humans kind of like work together? And what's the order within which you collect the facts? I guess like, how do the facts get collected? Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, we're about, a, we're engineers who are helping ingest that data and bring it to life on our site. We're a product team who's thinking about what are, what's the data visualizations, the articles, the reports that we can produce out of that. Why is this interesting? And marketers who are like, where do we find Americans who could use a source for the facts but didn't realize we exist? Um, and then in terms of like how that all comes together, we think about um, as we're planning for the year ahead. Now we didn't anticipate something like COVID obviously, but we think about what are the big issues that we think America's facing right now? Right. Climate, um, an election, um, healthcare costs, whatever they might be. And we're, we're looking at uh, polling data. We're seeing what's getting the most interest on our own site. Um, and we're looking at what's the president's agenda. What's, uh, what are both political parties talking about is in their agenda. And then how do we ensure that we are going out and getting government data related to those issues, bringing it to life on our site and what are the products that we produce out of that. So we're all just thinking together of how can we best anticipate, can't anticipate a pandemic, but with the best of our ability, what are the issues that are gonna be driving America and how do we arm citizens uh, with data so that they can feel empowered to understand, are we getting, are things getting better or are things getting worse? We're not gonna tell them that, they need to decide that based on the numbers and then advocate for the change they want to see and um, elect or, or not reelect uh, the, the people that they think will you know best serve their interests. So um, that's that's how we come up with it. So it sounds like it's an incredibly simple and complicated process made um, possible by you know so many uh, brilliant minds. And so, what are your initiatives now around this growth and hiring and um, who are some of the new hires that you're most proud of? I mean, I'm sure that you've had to grow your team along with the uh, viewership and um, acquisition of these 20 million people. Yeah, so our team, when I started, I was the sixth hire. Um, and at the time I was told we'll never be bigger than nine. Uh, we're about 40 people right now, but 40 people with an ambition to be the definitive source of all government data, federal, state, and local, create content that's super relevant and get it in the hands of every American. We think every American, maybe with the exception of infants, can be empowered and have impact with government data. Um, and so we have like big ambitions with a still pretty small team, but we've built up an engineering team. I'm so excited. I just hired a chief technology officer, Tanuja Korelebra, 
who came from uh, Microsoft and Amazon, and she has this incredible experience working with uh, massive data sets and helping us build that engine where we can ingest and extract and continuously update government data so that we can be that definitive source and then bring it to life on the front end in a way that's searchable and usable um, for all citizens. Um, we're thinking about what is the content that we can produce now that we have all this government data? What's interesting? How can it be helpful? How can we share it with Americans in a way that's just makes it easy and uh, easy to understand, easy to find, easy to, to rock with and, and share if they want to. Um, and so um, on our product team, we just added a data editor from the New York Times who was there for 18 years um, and her Wikipedia, she's called the Michael Phelps of data journalism. So she um, has joined us, her name is Amanda Cox and she's building a team and really their mission is just how do we take this government data and visualize it and create interactivity and tools so that people can see themselves in the data, can see their communities in the data, and can really understand are things getting better or worse and take action. Um, and then we've got our marketing team. Um, and right now we're looking for a chief marketing officer. So um, I know you've reached this incredible audience. So if the person's listening, who's like, I would love to market that thing, citizens. Um, we are hiring a chief marketing officer and have a a really talented team of marketers, thanks to Fuel, and um, they are helping find Americans on uh, platforms like TikTok and Instagram and saying, hey, who knew? Who knew that there was this resource I could go to uh, to get the facts, to feel confident that um, as I'm so confused by the various accounts of information I'm hearing, where do we actually stand as a country? What is a trusted nonpartisan source for that? And just to say there is a free resource, it's USA Facts. Come to usafacts.org um, and make it the information we're sharing relevant based on what they care about. Right. Incredible, especially that you're on TikTok because it's like so many children on there and who knows how that information is coming to them, but they do, they do use it as a source. So um, so leading through the pandemic, I mean, you got here, got to Seattle, got to um into USA Facts 2018 next thing you know it's 2020 we're in a pandemic how have you led through that and are you guys fully remote like is this New York Times person in Seattle now yeah she moved to Seattle I will say we when I started with USA Facts we have these beautiful offices in Bellevue and we were Monday through Friday every day all of us in the office and I think there were real benefits to that we were all very aligned we knew exactly what we were trying to achieve and there were you know the, the 11 or 12 of us who were scrappily trying to achieve massive ambitions we just rolled up our sleeves and got it done um the pandemic hit and obviously we all began working remotely and we learned surprise your job can still get effectively done. We can still empower Americans with the facts. And we had this massive growth while we all worked individually from our, our own homes. Um, we are starting to return to the office and we're trying to maintain that flexibility that everyone really appreciated and also rebuild that connectivity that I think we lost in terms of, hey, we're all trying to achieve this thing. Let's all roll up our sleeves. Okay, you're doing that. I'm doing this. And that kind of coordination and trust and teamwork that comes when like you're all physically gathered um, and so trying to get back to that a little bit so we've encouraged people to come in on Tuesdays and Thursdays and we do have a few people who have decided to remain remote um, and so we ask them to come in quarterly with us and gather in person but um, really trying to find that balance I think it's um, hard I'm sure you have 
so much more experience than I do on the Shana. So I'd really- Oh my gosh, it's my first time in a pandemic too. And I'm trying to lead my <laughs> lead my own team. And yes, we're also doing Tuesdays and Thursdays and give some people want to come in every day. Some people don't want to come in at all. Uh, for the people who don't want to come in at all, it's a little bit like, well, hey, I need you to scale a team. Um, yes, we can do it. But, you know, in recruiting, it's a little bit like there's no kind of, here's a manual. A lot of it is- you're being taught how to do it and best practices, but a lot of it is also just learning from hearing people on the phones and hearing how they handle certain situations because it can be so delicate. And I'm like, this is lost for sure, working remotely. We can crank out a ton of interviews and we can source and all that is like individual behavior, but the actual process of like managing expectations, talking to clients, it needs to happen in person. So we're trying to, we're also trying to solve that. And um yeah. When you figure it out, <laughs> when, when, cool. you, when you figure it out, let me know. So, yeah. So I'm guessing you're getting a little bit more time with more balance. How are you, um, I guess, balancing it all? Do you have rituals or ways that you set yourself up for a good week? Um, aside from sleeping in and hitting snooze <laughs> and watching and watching television. I love you even more after this interview. I don't know that I figured it out. I would say the one thing is I don't have guilt. Like it, I can do it or I can't do it. And like, I can't be everywhere at once. And some things I just can't do some things I can. You were teasing me because our boys both play for the same lacrosse team. And you're like, I never see you at a game. Yeah. And I don't make it to most of his games. Um, and it's, I just, what we you know have told our kids is like, my husband stays home. Um, and so we're super fortunate. He hasn't always, but he does now. And he can be at every game. And so we've said, hey, we won't both be at everything. We've had to like divide and conquer a little bit here. And like, you know, your mom's the reason why you've got all that amazing gear and why um, you're able to play in this league and why we can take pretty cool vacations. And um, she'll try to be at like the most important games. And um, I do other things with him. I volunteer with him. Yeah. Um, and well, so you're, you're doing a ton, by the way. You're like one of those moms that does everything. And when I said the comment of like, I don't see you at things, in my mind, I was like, oh, she's probably sitting in another area. And I'm like the crazy mom who can't really sit, <laughs> who can't really sit with people because I get so stressed out that they're going to get like hit so hard with the sticks. It just stress, lacrosse stresses me out. A woman said that to me at my daughter's lacrosse game. She was like, I never see you at anything. And I think it's because she's my third. I like kind of do things, but I don't do as many things. And I remember being feeling, I love that you said you don't feel guilt. I felt slightly triggered by it. Okay. Like, am I not enough? Like, do I need to, oh gosh, am I not coming to enough games? Like, I love that you're like, I can be where I can be and I can't where I, I mean, it's just that simple. I love that actually. That's another key takeaway aside from uh, Paper Palace book and many other things that you told me. The newsletter, I need to sign up for the USA Facts newsletter. I like this. Is this just good nuggets for women to hear as reminders? I think we beat ourselves up a lot. I think we do. And I'm just like, I'm going to do everything I can, but the, that which I can't, I just don't do it and move on. So hopefully people give, give themselves a break. Yes. So you, so you don't have the guilt. That's a great one. And then are there like apps or anything? This is all selfish questions on my part to just try to learn from women like you. Oh, I mean, I would say another secret is just getting away with 
girlfriends with, um, I know you just joined the Young Presidents Organization. I'm going with my forum. Uh, we're going away together for five days. So that's a group of 10 other business leaders. And we're just going to spend five days together on a mix of like personal, professional and development, but also just relaxing and getting to know one another. So I think just taking time away um, definitely recharges and, and refuels me. Um, and so I'd say carve out opportunities for that. And then I think also carving out time to like serve your community and give back. And just that is a good reminder of how when life feels like, oh, it's so stressful and I have so many problems. Like, well, my problems are like pretty manageable compared to like what a lot of people are struggling with right now. And um, I do have an opportunity to have an impact and that's going out and, and finding opportunities to volunteer and serve. So I recommend that too. I think that's super helpful and something to be, uh, I guess a good personal reminder because it, it does feel like, how do I change the world? You can start with your community. Like, it's just that simple, like start by having an impact in your community and in your schools and with your children and your families. Um, okay, so my final question is what fuels you, your, your kind of inspiration? Oh, well, what fuels me is definitely travel. So um, I love having the opportunity to go and go to new places and experience new cultures and try food I've never tried or do a adventurous activity I've never done before that scares me a little bit. Um, and so that definitely fuels me is getting to do those adventures with my family. Um, what fuels me is like being near the water. Um, I don't live near the water. Well, I do, but like blocks away. I can't see it. But like getting out and taking a walk and just like looking at the water calms me getting to go to the Oregon coast and just like walking on the ocean that fuels me. So I think just even when I'm just driving over the bridge to work and I'm just like, I got to not causing any accidents, but just like, look at that beautiful, like Washington and just like kind of breathe it in and, and get settled. Um, and then time with time with girlfriends, um, time with my family on the weekend and my dog and just going for a walk and um, just being away from my device and uh, the chaos for a little bit, um, that, that definitely fuels me. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com. To provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.